523. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out SpiritBlade.com or by checking us out at patreon.com slash productions. But on the show today, I'll be sharing my review of the horror movie Hereditary. Ooh, that was an interesting experience. Um, and I'll be sharing a look at a video game with a clear LGBTQ agenda, along with some suggestions on how we as Christians should respond to that kind of thing. All right, here we go. Okay, kiddo, pop quiz time. Best movie franchise? The Terminator. Mm, not even close. The Matrix. Best TV show? Star Trek. Star... What? Farscape. You have to know that it's Farscape. Uh, it's like you're not even my son. Unless... You're not my son. I don't like your voice. It irritates me. Hey, hey wait. <clears throat> Let's make another call. No, please. And another, and another, and another. You are very messy. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Hereditary, uh, which I had the chance to watch uh, recently. It recently came out on home video. I missed it when it was in theaters. Partially, in large part, because I wasn't sure from the trailers what kind of movie it was, if it was merely a psychological horror movie or if it was actually a supernatural horror movie. I don't, I only review like really imaginative, fantastical type of entertainment content. Um, so if it was merely psychological, you know, and in that sense, more realistic, you know, type of horror, then I wasn't going to review it for Christian Geek Central. But uh, I learned after the fact uh, that it was actually a very much a supernatural horror movie. The synopsis on IMDb for Hereditary reads, After the family matriarch passes away, a grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences and begin to unravel dark secrets. Um, and really, I wouldn't want to say a whole lot more about the details of the plot because that's really like a lot of what the experience is, is figuring out what is going on? What the crap is the deal here, you know? Um, and the way that that happens is over the course of the movie, more information just organically comes out as you hear these characters talk about their past, specifically about this grown daughter played by Tony Collette, unless her name is pronounced Coletti, I'm not sure. I'm going to say Collette. Um, 
She plays this adult daughter whose mother, the grand, who I'll refer to now as the grandmother, uh, just passed away at the beginning of the story. And so in the fallout of that, there are just kind of creepy, kind of ghost story type elements, you know, apparitions that seem to be appearing and stuff. And also... Um, this woman just dealing with looking back on her really screwed up childhood because of what we learn is her really screwed up, you know, mother who just passed away. Um, so it is a what I would describe as a supernatural horror drama, which I'm trying to think if I've ever seen another movie. I, I think I probably have, but not that really emphasizes the drama and the groundedness uh, of the uh, of the the scary content. Usually, there's something just kind of like weird and fantastical going on in these type of stories. But this is, as I learned after watching the movie, uh, a, a movie that was written and directed based on a very intense real world occult research. And I have not done very much reading into real world real world occult stuff. I've got a few books, like maybe one or two, on the subject, um, but. Just knowing as little as I do, watching this movie, I was like, this has a decidedly realistic vibe to their treatment of the supernatural elements. Um, realistic not in that I would affirm the truth claims found in occult belief systems, but realistic in that this reflects um, beliefs and practices that are real, that, that people actually... Uh, take part in and affirm in their lives today. Uh, it's a, as far as like the vibe of the movie, the feel of the movie, like I said, it is kind of a ghost story, at least at the start, where the creepiness and scares and stuff are mostly about visions and apparitions and stuff like that. But there's also some disturbing, violent, tragic um, kind of content, you know, not just like horror movies that like go for gore and stuff like that. Oh my gosh, what am I seeing? It's so horrible and liquidy and stuff like that, you know. Um, no, this is more, the violence is more disturbing um, for how grounded it is and the nature of it. I really don't want to say more than that. It's it's tragic violence and, and disturbing at the same time. And yeah, uh, it's 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 hard to, to categorize this, in this as horror because of all the... Uh, tropes that that brings up that this movie just does not really partake in. It's um, very grounded. It's not dependent on otherworldly creature designs, but rather on creepy figures in the shadows that you suddenly realize are present in the frame, but you almost can't see them, you know? Um, it deals with kind of fear of the creepy, fear of the unknown, like a Lovecraft, an H.P. Lovecraft story would. But if you go deep enough into a Lovecraft-inspired story, it's almost always going to take you to some bizarre visuals that are just like, what am I looking at? You know, like weird things with tentacles or people with their bodies twisted and walking on their, you know, walking backwards and stuff on their on their hands and, and feet, you know. And this isn't doing that. It's doing creepy, unknown, disturbing stuff and some imagery that goes along with that, but not in that usual Lovecraftian sense. And it, it is not at a disadvantage for that. In fact, I found it more disturbing for how grounded it was in, in real-world accounts of people dealing with supernatural, dark supernatural things, you know. Um, it's often a quiet movie, but I was never bored watching this. Uh, and I was even watching it on a night where I was actually very tired. Uh, the, the quiet scenes usually contained some oddness um, to them that, that made me kind of lean forward and go like, what? 
and wonder what the crap was going on, where this movie was headed next, you know. Uh, I don't think there's a single jump scare in the entire movie. And I hate jump scares. I find them very cheap. They don't hold up for me on repeat viewing because I know when they're coming. For me, I really appreciate things that are unsettling because those are only refreshed upon repeat viewings for me. And this movie is not about jump scares. It is all about unsettling you and getting deep under your skin. But unlike Lovecraft, which is similarly those those kinds of stories uh, are going for unsettling you getting under your skin unlike lovecraft who again deals in this in more fantastical otherworldly dread this movie is much more grounded in real and disturbing occult beliefs and practices now probably i don't know but probably very exaggerated from the norm in practicing uh, uh, occult circles but still very much based in those real world beliefs uh, because of this i find myself sitting here and having a hard time <laughs> thinking, who would I recommend this movie to that I know personally? Or even some of you that I've, I've gotten to know a little bit uh, online, you know. I'm thinking, who <laughs> who would I recommend this to? I don't know of anyone. that I don't even know that I would recommend it to myself if I could go back in time, but we'll get to that shtick in a minute. Um, even Christian fans who are... Uh, even Christians who are fans of supernatural horror, I would pause and say, I don't know, because I like... I like horror, not necessarily supernatural horror. Sometimes I'm in, in the mood for that. I tend to more like monster, creature feature type stuff. Um, but, man, I, I don't know who to recommend this to. I think that horror is fine. I think it's uh, a, a healthy form of entertainment when we approach it like a haunted house. Something that we know is fake, but we kind of like to artificially test our quote-unquote courage against. And then, you know, we can kind of have a laugh afterward at how we were scared by this thing that, you know, is obviously fake and on a screen and stuff like that, you know. Or we can marvel at the creative imagination involved in the scary creatures or ideas and stuff. Um, I think that there can be horror experiences that are totally healthy. But this one borrows so much from real-world occult practices that some parts of it just kind of made me feel gross or sad and disturbed at the thought of people in the real world investing their lives in these beliefs and practices and thinking about the devastating consequences, setting aside, you know, the kind of like over-exaggerated uh, horror elements. I mean, getting messed up, getting messing around with the occult can lead to some horrible things uh, in both this life and the next, you know, but it can lead to horrible devastation in this life um, that is plenty horrible without going to the extremes this, that this movie takes it to. Uh, and so because of that, I, you know, I kind of was a little bit down while I was watching this movie, just like, oh my gosh, you know? And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I add and really want to emphasize the word drama to this experience. It's not just a family drama. I think it's a drama also in the sense of, you know, if you believe that in some sense, some elements of what they're talking about in this movie are real and that people can actually totally screw up their lives by getting involved in this kind of stuff, then there is something, there's something really tragic about the viewing experience, I think, if you take that worldview into the movie with you. Um, that said, the occult, I want to be clear, is not glorified in this movie. Sometimes the occult can be glorified. Uh, often it's not in horror movies. It's usually glorified in kind of adventure movies where you have a hero who is leveraging 
the occult in some way to empower them to fight the true evil in the movie or something like that, you know. Um, this is in no way glorifying the occult as far as I'm concerned, this movie. Even when the protagonists temporarily embrace it, the results turn against them horribly. Uh, this movie presents the occult as something to stay away from, not get mixed up in, and not something that can bring peace or empowerment in quite, in fact, quite the opposite uh, in this movie. Um, let me talk briefly about the cast. Well, maybe not so briefly, longer than I usually do, probably. I love the cast performances in this movie. Tony Collette uh, leads the cast, as the, for most of the movie, I should say, as the daughter of the recently deceased um, grandmother, uh, I've usually seen her in roles like that are character roles or in smaller films, such as the more recent film Please Stand By, which I've reviewed and would recommend checking out. Um, she is a fantastic uh, actress as far as I'm concerned. She's wonderful in this movie as this broken, bitter uh, daughter and mother trying to hold her life together despite massive dysfunction, both uh, within herself and in those around her. Alex Wolf plays her son. I'd seen him recently in Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, where he plays that main kind of nerdy kid um, who then gets put into the body of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, you know? Um, so anyway, he plays their son in this movie. I really enjoyed him in this movie. It was really just taken in by his performance. Um, and he becomes more prominent near the end of the movie and carries that part really well. I really look forward to seeing him do more in the future. Uh, my only question was why there was no mention of him in this movie, in this story, being adopted or having a different biological dad because ethnically he looks like an impossible product to come from the two actors that were cast as his parents in this movie. So that was a little odd. I was kind of always waiting for like, are we going to hear something about how he was adopted or something like that? That never happens. And so I was just kind of left going, huh, that's un that's that aspect of the casting unus is unusual. But Everything else about the casting of Alex Wolf, I'm really grateful for because I, I was really taken in by him in this movie. Millie Shapiro plays the enig enigmatic young Charlie, who's uh, probably featured far more of the two children in the promo material for this movie. And her character is uh, fragile and, and at the same time creepy for her odd behavior and withdrawn personality. So I really appreciated that casting there as well. I love that this movie seemed to be cast like an independent movie. Um, by that I mean uh, the best actors is what they seem to be going after, the best actors for these roles. Um, maybe they were, you know, going in some ways for their look and casting based on their look some as well, but none of these actors, you know... Um, I, I, they they were they were solid actors and i would say that none of them were what i would call like classic beauties or pretty boys as we typically think of them in hollywood they have striking sometimes rugged features that are just not the norm for hollywood and i love it i love that they're casting these kinds of faces in this movie i mean they they feel more like real people real people that i've met and that i run into you know every day if hollywood is ever somehow, I know this is a crazy fantasy, but if they are ever held, held accountable by audiences at large, this is something that the the vast majority of moviegoers would have to decide they, they want to hold, you know, they'd have to decide that they want this change. But if it were to happen that audiences would say, hey, you know, we don't want to be catered to with these actors that are prioritized in their casting because of their broad... Uh, broadly, you know, attractive faces or familiar faces or whatever. And if instead we, 
you know, as consumers would say, man, we really want the best performances and the best casting choices for these particular roles that we that could possibly be done to make this movie happen, then I think that we would have far more high-quality performances in our movies and varied casting that emphasize uh, immersion in story over just kind of like broadly or generically attractive and familiar faces. So I would love to see that happen. I can't imagine that it will before Jesus comes. But uh, in the meantime, wow, really appreciate the casting in this movie. As far as the uh, the stunts and visuals... Um, the visual effects are very minimal, and that's a strength of this movie. It's much more about lighting and those creepy background images that you suddenly realize are present. Uh, so great choices visually for this kind of, of story. Um, so as far as the themes, you know, I like to talk about, are there any um, moral, philosophical, or spiritual themes that might trigger worthwhile thoughts in us or conversation that maybe could come out of seeing this movie with somebody else? Um, I think there is, of course, the obvious supernatural and occult material to think about. Um, I've already talked about that. Uh, some uh, and again I appreciate that the movie is a cautionary tale about the occult rather than a glorification of it um, I think that there's also and, and I would say this not because I took this from the movie itself but after reading an interview with the uh, the director and writer of this movie he talked about how it was in some ways in some ways cathartic because of some experiences that he had I think growing up or something like that and he didn't go into any more detail about that so I don't know what he had in mind but it got my mind thinking about the other ways that this movie could be viewed what in what ways it could be cathartic that would be a little bit more of a normal experience than getting mixed up in in the the occult and I think that as we consider that there's the possible theme here of dealing with your childhood and the elements of your childhood that you are not happy with. You know, when people reach their early to mid-adult years, uh, they often start looking back on their childhood and seeing their parents in a new light, sometimes a negative one, and having um, kids of your own can cause you to look back and see some faults in your parents and the choices they made while raising you and and cause you to resolve to just do differently and determine that you're not going to make those same mistakes with your own kids. Um, so there's possibly a parallel there. There, I think this movie actually, and this is speculation on my part, but I think it better parallels the situation of being an adult and dealing with some serious serious wrongs done to you by your parents uh, when you were a child. Possibly even wrongs that are genuinely abusive in nature. As this movie progresses, we learn more and more about um, how horribly abusive this grandmother was to her own daughter, just in like like psychologically just in jacked up ways, you know, not necessarily like like beating her and stuff, you know, but just totally warping her and and uh, the way she treated her and f just totally devalued her. I mean, wow. Um, and that daughter in this story now as an adult is navigating her own destroyed life while unintentionally inflicting abuse on her own family. And that is such a common story, you know, to see people that have been horribly abused in one way or another by their parents. Um, then actually carrying out the same form or just a modified form of that abuse on other people in their lives or on their children. Uh, I think in this light, 
the movie can potentially serve as a call to those who have been abused to seek out the help they need in order to break those cycles and find healing um, from people that can help them. Um, though I do have to admit, you know, this is a bit of speculation as far as like, you know, the intent of the movie or the possible application of the movie. And I think that most people will probably not have that parallel in mind as they experience this movie. They'll probably just be thinking about this is really creepy and unsettling, you know. Um, so I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, I would go back in time and say, Peter, um, I don't know, dude. I don't know. Um, so many things about this movie are made in ways that you will really appreciate. Other elements are disturbing in ways that don't delight or entertain, but just make you feel sad and just kind of will bring you down a bit. Now, that kind of experience may have its place now and then in your life. Um, you know, movies are, are not always about making you feel good. Sometimes they're making you feel bad in ways that will bring about something good, some good reflection in your life, you know. But man, Pater, just know going in that this is a realistically dark and heavy supernatural drama like nothing you've seen before. And that if it is ultimately worth seeing, you may not ever feel drawn to watch again. Uh, all right. It's rated R for horror, violence, disturbing images, language, drug use, and brief graphic nudity. One comment on the nudity is that it is non-sexualized, uh, featuring uh, overweight and you know unappealing bodies that are dimly lit. Um, I don't want to say that as an excuse. That's just to give you more information about the nature of it, so you can kind of decide for yourself what uh, what you're uh, okay with subjecting yourself to. I do think that it's still a form of objectification, but in a different way, uh, not as uh, objects of lust for the viewer. So anyway, there you have it. I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, POSTOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. Data collection complete. Activating Musenet 1.0. This week at YouTube.com slash Christian Geek Central, I've posted the video, Why Wisdom is Better for Geeks Than Money. That's uh, the video version of our continuing look at the book of Proverbs with uh, John Wilkerson, who's been joining me for that. Uh, also, a video titled, Finding Biblical Truth in Warhammer 40K. That's the uh, article from Speculative Faith that I read on the podcast last week. So that's the video version of that, including some uh, images that go along with the lore and the uh, game components for Warhammer. 40k. Uh, and then, of course, also you can find my view, my review of the movie Hereditary. And by now, you should be able to get my uh, video, a longer one than usual, on uh, Time Spinner, which also includes my thoughts on the gameplay, which I did not include for time and audio purposes uh, in, uh, in in this episode of the podcast. So all of that over at YouTube.com/slash Christian Geek Central. While you're there, if you want to like, share, and subscribe, I'd be grateful for that. And you can also click that notification bell to help you 
you uh, avoid missing a video when it comes out. I'd also be grateful if you'd leave just a one or two sentence review for this podcast on iTunes or other podcatchers to help more people discover this podcast and the Christian Geek Central community. Uh, Geekly news highlights from our Twitter feed at Christian underscore geek include the 3D retro real-time strategy video game 8-Bit Armies. 8-Bit Armies from Sodesco, the publisher responsible for the Christian-themed video game Adam's Venture. Enclave Publishing also announced Hideous Beauty, part one of a new supernatural novel series that's coming October 9th. And one of the most famous Christian-developed video games, Myst, celebrated 25 years this week. So congratulations to them. I I can only imagine that they've undoubtedly inspired many other Christians to uh, enter mainstream game development. So that was really cool to see. To stay up to date on the notable news and announcements from the wider world of Christian geekery, follow Christian Geek Central on Twitter at Christian underscore geek. Uh, Guys, there's a ton of content rolling out all the time from Christian Geek Central, movie and video game reviews, and ongoing in-depth Bible study with specifically geek application, Christian geek industry news, gaming live streams, and a bunch more. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can help make sure all that content keeps going and growing on into the future and get yourself some exclusive content as well. I want to say again that I'm so grateful for the support of all our Spirit Blade insiders who've made it possible for me to continue in this work. For more information, visit patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. Right now... I want to invite you one last time to mark your calendar. Well, and this won't be the last time I mention it. It's going to be the last time I play this dumb promo, but mark your calendar for November 3rd. Then take a listen to this. November 3rd, November 3rd, Dragon Quest XI and Spider-Man for PS4 are coming out within three days of each other. I'm going to try and review both games. I don't have time to make a brand new Extra Life recruitment bumper. November 3rd. Once again this year, Christian Geek Central is participating in Extra Life. Uh, This is a charity that raises funds for the Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals, which provides free medical care to children whose families could otherwise not afford it. And this is very often for critical, life-saving treatment. Joining our team only requires a willingness to ask your family and friends to consider donating toward your fundraising efforts. Participants also usually do something fun and game-related to draw attention to their fundraising efforts, like a, a special game night at your home or your church, or like me, you could do a crazy 24-hour video gaming marathon. Now, I'm theming it around video games, but really this this event can be themed around any kind of gaming, which includes both video games and tabletop games of any kind. What you do to raise funds is entirely up to you, but I would love for you to consider joining the Christian Geek Central Extra Life team. Uh, as team leader, I'll be there to help answer your questions, provide some helpful tips if I can, and just in general be your fundraising cheerleader and try to draw attention myself to your fundraising efforts. You can get more information about the event as a whole at extra-life.org and if you choose to sign up there be sure to select Christian Geek Central as your team so I can get in touch with you and then just help in whatever way I can. Fundraising can begin at any time but our main push is going to be through the month of October leading up to November 3rd Uh, that's the annual Extra Life game day uh, when I'll be streaming my 24 hour video gaming marathon live and trying to stay awake without throwing up. More details on my live stream as we get closer to it. Uh, That's it for now. Thanks for watching. Bye bye.
I want to share with you guys right now a good chunk of the audio from my uh, video review that just went up on youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central for the video game Time Spinner. Now, there was the, the balance between my uh, voice and the game music while I was talking about the game as I played it. Uh, it wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. Uh, I'm I'm wondering how easy it'll be to understand everything that I'm saying, especially when you're just listening to it and you can't like now and then, you know, be referencing my lips, you know, all the all the time as well. It's it's probably not as bad as I think it is. But anyway, just because the audio for that first 15 minutes where I talk about the gameplay specifically, it was not quite where I wanted it to be. And just for the sake of not having a hugely mammoth, overlong episode of the podcast, I'm actually going to only share with you right now my thoughts on the story of the game. And I'm going to read through, you'll hear me read through examples of cutscenes and how the LGBTQ themes are presented. Um, and and just some suggestions on how, you know, we can respond to that. So anyway, this is the, uh, this is uh, most of the audio, but not all of it. The first 15 minutes um, are just on the, the video on YouTube. So if you want my thoughts on like the gameplay, um, which I really did enjoy, um, for the most part, you can see that video for on Time Spinner over at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central. But right now, I'll just take you to my thoughts and reactions to the uh, LGBTQ-oriented scenes in uh, Time Spinner and my uh, reactions to them. But now I do want to talk about the story a little bit. This style of game is not known for having these great stories. In fact, the Castlevania symphony likes are have stories that are weird and confusing and clearly seem to have things lost in translation so you know i just don't go to these types of games expecting a story but it seemed clear to me from the very beginning that they were wanting to try and uh, make story a more significant component in this game than you would expect now i'm not going i'm going to try to avoid spoilers for the main story but i am going to openly talk about some of what i would call the the supporting stories, the side stories, that really actually become very prominent near the end to the point where it feels like, oh, is this is like the main story now. The premise, the main story itself, has some cool ideas, time travel and stuff, traveling into different eras to try and change the timeline. You've got these two societies that are kind of like at war with each other and have been for hundreds of years, and it's great because neither one of them is like really obviously the good guy and the bad guy. It is a mess and so I really appreciated the nuance in that. You could argue that there is like some um, liberal social uh, politics that are kind of driving the, the story. You know like the, the haves versus the have-nots and stuff and I didn't feel like that part of the messaging agenda was really being hammered at me all the time. And in fact, it doesn't necessarily fall on like a li specifically liberal political agenda. It's more an, an agenda of compassion, you know? Like, here's this group of people that are not being treated well. And they're being treated poorly for something that, uh, at least arguably, they can't control. So it would be a little bit like X-Men. There are no mutants in the real world, but people who resonate with the themes of the X-Men movies and comics um, may be among those who feel marginalized. And that could be people uh, with specific sexual attractions or people with specific ethnicities or people with uh, specific religious beliefs. There are all kinds of different people groups that can connect with the idea of feeling marginalized um, because of something that either they 
cannot change or have no desire to change. What's less vague, though, uh, is the position that the game clearly takes on LGBTQ issues. It's not clearly apparent at the beginning, but as you progress through the game, it becomes more and more clear that uh, a large number of the main cast of characters in some way fall into the LGBTQ demographic. These themes become more and more obvious as the game progresses. What I want to do now is actually go through screenshots of some of these scenes and just kind of talk through them and share my reactions and thoughts as I do that. It starts pretty subtle. Luneus, the protagonist, uh, meets a couple of demons, an incubus and a succubus, these kind of seduction demons. The incubus says, My, my, a dream dragon, is it? You must be very passionate. The succubus says, You could have us both. I know you want to. We could give you power, the power you want to get your revenge. So there's just a little indication there that this, this demon is aware that she's attracted to both of them. Then as you discover the lore of the game, the history of the game through documents that you find as you're traveling the environments, uh, you learn that there was a princess who was married to Queen Philia. In this game, the, the, the good guys have matriarchies and the evil empire is a patriarchy. And on top of that, the matriarchy involves a, a, a lesbian queen married to a princess. As you find more of these documents, the uh, expressions of uh, attraction and romance between two female characters becomes more and more obvious. Uh, Philia says, to put it simply, I miss you since returning to Villette. I've been able to think of little but our time together, our talks in the gardens, the dinners under the blue sky, your warmth in the cold nights, dot, dot, dot. Even the early signs of bleakness, bleakness which is this kind of like this plague, uh, were nothing next to your touch. Even in the religions, it, there's uh, either a polytheism or also like an eternal mother figure that is uh, worshipped. Very brief references as far as the theology of the world goes. Then there are little hints of polygamy that enter into the story. Again, through these uh, background logs at first, actually there was just a little hint of it that made me wonder in the very opening scene as I was meeting some of the townspeople, but it was very vague at the beginning, so it, it wasn't until later that, that, that this, the writing confirmed, okay, we are talking about uh, polygamous relationships here. And it's very much in passing, you know, in one of these logs describing a situation that really has nothing to do with the fact that there's polygamy going on. Uh, we read, she's stiff. Her two husbands and a daughter stand behind her, but she hugs him. And then the story goes on from there. But just in passing, her two husbands. There's an exchange between a character named Rameda and Luneus. Um, Rameda says, oh, just thinking about something Haristel said last night in bed. Luneus says, you share a bed with Haristel? Are you lovers? He says, we have a loving relationship, yes. Haristel, anyway, doesn't matter. And then he goes on. Interesting that he qualified his answer, didn't want maybe to be pinned down with a specific label. A scene much later in the game really kind of opens that up and just puts on the table the idea that there are all kinds of different uh, romantic and sexual relationships going on that they really want to make room for in, in the world of this game. Nelist, or Nelist, however you pronounce it, is an interesting character at your base camp. She's probably the one that you're interacting with the most because she does like some equipment crafting for you uh, and will send you out on various quests. And uh, she, in talking about her history, tells Luneus, I was an archer. They conscripted me. I tried so hard to be who they wanted me to be, but I never really fit in. Looking back, 
It was like I spent everything trying to outrun who I really was. Eventually, I ran. She talks about being unhappy serving the empire that she was serving and, and adds, I wasn't happy with who I was turning into. Linnaeus says, Nell, I'm glad you ran. Nilist says, after that, I took up alchemy to find myself and hopefully find a way to fix the bleakness. Again, that's the, the plague in this world. So I think this reveals a little bit of the heart of those who feel marginalized, specifically here those in the LGBT community who feel like they don't fit in, like they um, are being asked by everyone else to change who they are as in, in terms of their essence. Nilist here had to run away in order to find herself, to find who she basically really is. And so uh, sexuality is strongly tied to uh, identity, I think, in the LGBT community. And so I want to I make two things clear as I'm talking my way through this. One, this isn't the whole game and like every scene that you're running into in the, in the story as you're interacting with NPCs. It just starts subtly and becomes more upfront as the game goes on. I would say by the last third or fourth of the game, it is very frequent and probably as much as... Uh, 70, 60 to 70% of the interactions that you're having with characters can in some way be tied to uh, relationship, romance, sexuality, something like that. It almost feels like a date sim uh, near the end of the game when you interact with uh, NPCs. There's also an increasing amount of sexual innuendo. Luneus brings back some meat that was part of basically a fetch quest, brings it back to a character, says, I have your meat. Sakis, the character, replies, well, there's something I usually only hear boys say, but thanks, one freshly cooked drumstick coming right up. Then here's another hint from Luneus coming back from a quest where she was supposed to kill these sirens. Another little hint here at her same sex, att sex attraction. She says, I managed to kill some of the sirens. You weren't kidding about their beauty. There's also at least a couple times in this game where commitment to relationships is uh, is really kind of downplayed. In one journal entry, Luneus's mother is talking about uh, her father, who she met and had a brief relationship with, and then she says, Anyway, I had no desire to see him again. He was never meant to be a long-term commitment. And this isn't portrayed as a bad thing, as like a one-night stand or like a shallow relationship. It's just portrayed as this is the nature of relationships, that they come and go, and that should be expected, that you kind of go from one partner to another. You also have character designs that, in some cases, seem to be designed to look very neutral in terms of their gender, and other times seem specifically designed to look like the opposite of what they're saying the gender of that character actually is. I had to, you know, I was puzzled at times trying to figure out, okay, is this a, a male or a female character? Because pixel graphics are pretty simplistic. So sometimes it was just through conversations that I would learn what the genders of, of certain characters were. Here's another little side quest. You're trying to help someone uh, gain back health that they'd lost in a battle or something like that. Uh, Eshem is the name of the character. A male character, I think, even now I'm not completely sure. Uh, anyway, he says, okay, yeah, I think I like Sakis a lot. Lunea says, uh-huh, have you told him? And that's when I got confused. I was like, well, last time I saw Sakis, that looked for sure like a female character. Esham answers, no, I'm worried. Back home, he wouldn't have looked at me. He wouldn't have been supposed to. He's a higher class, magically talented, not like me. Lunea says, I think Sakis might like you. Esham says, even if he does, he'll never say it. I want to give him something. Maybe it will help. Could you bring me silver ore, maybe from the caves? 
So you're sent on this quest, uh, and these quests often have benefits that help you in gameplay. Even though they are uh, technically optional, many of them, um, they give you benefits, and so you know you have reason you have reason to go out and do them. I should add to that back to talking about the gameplay a little bit. It wasn't clear to me in the quest menu which quests actually would help advance the plot and which were just kind of side quests. And so I felt obligated to kind of do them all in order to make sure I was making progress through the game. And I'll maybe come back to that uh, that feeling of uh, obligation to do all these quests in a little bit. So the next time you talk to Seikis, uh, the relationship with a uh, potential relationship with uh, Eshem comes up. So, so really, even though you're visiting these characters for little other fetch quests and stuff, they're, they're always bringing back these, you know, relationships. And even if these were all heterosexual relationships, it would start at this point striking me as odd. As like, boy, this game is a lot about relationships. That's really interesting. Lunea says, thinking about a certain cute portal guard. And Seikis, if you're watching the video version of this, here's the model. Uh, hair up in a ponytail and, uh, uh, you know, lots of, like, pink colors, colors associated with female characters. So is this a biologically male character that identifies themselves as female? Uh, unclear to me. I think that's probably what's intended. So now we return here uh, with to some of these kind of like, I guess you would call them social justice related issues. Seika says no one should have that power, talking about the evil emperor right now, to decide that some people get fewer rights just because of how they were born. And there's repeated talk of, you know, certain people groups being treated like second class citizens. It seems like almost every opportunity is taken once you get to the halfway point of the game to turn a conversation into something that has romantic or sexual innuendo involved. Luneus says to this uh, recovering character, hey there, you're looking good. And he answers, you flirting with me? Not quite my type, Luneus. She answers, I wouldn't want to get between you and Seikis anyway. I meant to say, you look healthy. So it started coming to a point here where even if this were like about heterosexual relationships, I would I would start thinking this is just kind of arbitrarily being thrown in here. Like all this, you know, these romance things, these relationships going on back on the base. We got all this crap going on, you know, in the world, and and the the conversation keeps coming around to uh, sexual innuendo jokes or assumptions of flirtation or oh, what's so and so feeling about this person and da 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 da. So then Esham, this character recovering from his injuries, says to Lynn. Uh, that, that he would like her help. He says, I want to, you know, go on a real date with Seikis. No more of this bedside flirting. A real date. She says, good idea. He says, problem is, I want to get out of the camp, and while I'm not exactly in fighting form, there's a waterfall out in the woods that's nice and relaxing. If you could help me get there... Yeah, sure, she says. All right, let's head out. So then you help him go out, get out to this location so that he can go uh, on a date with this other male character. After bringing Esham to the uh, to the nice picturesque waterfall environment, uh, he says, oof, need to catch my breath. Lunea says, you look nervous. Esham says, oh no, it shows. Lunea says, don't worry, it's cute. Esham says, I hope so. And then Seika shows up, says, Esham? Uh, oh, hi, Lunaeus. Um And Lunaeus says, don't worry, I'm out of here. Stay safe, you two. Later, Lunaeus sees uh, these two together and says, well, you look cute together. Eshim says, it's true, we do. So again, all just these little increasing uh, little snippets 
centered around these LGBTQ relationships. Not a part of the main gameplay, but increasingly, much more and more frequently a part of all your NPC reactions as you go back to uh, the base. Then we have what I think is um, um, a really valuable scene um, for, for us as Christians to see here. This is a scene where Nelist uh, kind of comes out to Luneus. Nilist says to her, actually, Luneus, wait, before you go, I have something else to tell you. Luneus says, sure, now you can tell me anything. Nilist says, first, I wanted to thank you again. Really, you've done so much for us here. I told you before that I didn't fit in with the army, but it wasn't just ideological differences. I was conscripted because all Velician men are expected to serve, and that's what they said I was from the moment I was born. It didn't make sense to argue with them at the time. I had no idea things could be any different, though I desperately wanted them to be. But like so many things with Velit, I eventually realized that they were the ones who were wrong. When I left the army, I turned my life around. I decided to help people, not fight them. I reinvented myself, and I finally accepted the fact that I was a woman, embraced who I always had been. Lunea says, Oh, Nell, thank you for telling me, for trusting me. And I think that's something that's really valuable for us as Christians to remember. We see in the Bible that same-sex uh, romantic and sexual relationships are not God's design, but people still find themselves having those feelings of attraction. Um, and uh, that's for a, a number of reasons. There can be a number of triggers, a number of you know uh, things going on in the background. Everyone that finds themselves in this situation is going to have a different and unique story. And they have likely felt very misunderstood, very judged and labeled and just pre-evaluated by people in their lives. And so it takes a lot of courage and energy and trust in order to share those kinds of deeper things with other people. So when we find ourselves on the receiving end of learning that, uh, that, that someone that we know is experiencing same-sex attraction, I think this is a good response. And my guess is that this is partly the writer's way of instructing people. This is really a good scenario. I would like to hear this from someone that I share this with. Thank you for telling me. Thank you for trusting me with this. Saying that does not um, encourage or validate the pursuit of their same-sex attraction, um, but it can let them know, hey, nothing's changed. I'm not like in revulsion uh, toward you. I still want to hang out with you or I want the nature of our relationship to continue the way that it's been. I really value this friendship. I think those are things that, that we as Christians can uh, absolutely say and that can be really helpful in those situations. And Nalist uh, bears this out in her response. She says, you're welcome. The others know too. I'm proud of my journey, but it can feel a little like confessing sometimes if I really like who I'm telling. Now, that's a different matter if, if along with um, someone sharing that they have same-sex attraction, at the same time them sharing that they are attracted to, uh, to you, that situation takes a lot more care. And I'm going to recommend a resource a little bit later on. Lunea says, I want you to know, Nell, that this doesn't change how I feel about you. Nellist says, good, that's good to hear. So again, I suspect we're getting a, an inside look into one or more of the writer's uh, diary, if you will, of really what they would like uh, or what they know others in this kind of situation would really like to hear. 
I think as Christians, we need to grow in our ability to have compassion for people, even as we don't see things the same way they do. Moving on to another conversation between Nelist and Lunaeus. Nelist says, you can be angry sometimes, restless, like those with the bleakness. And that's one of the symptoms of the, the, the bleakness plague. Looking for so much more, but it's made you driven. And beneath that, you are truly kind. Lunaeus says, stop it, I'm blushing. Nelist says, don't worry, it's cute. And so we see this kind of like developing uh, romance going on between Nelist and Lunaeus. And, you know, I should I should point out, unlike, say, a Skyrim or something like that, you really don't have agency or, or choice in this, like you would say in the in a Bioware RPG. You know, you, this main character is who the main character is, and as you're playing through the game, you know, you are just kind of watching these dialogue scenes happen. You don't really have a choice to engage in these relationships or not to engage in them. And the list sends you on a quest to get a special crystal called a, a Galaxy Stone. You bring it back, and she says, hey, great, this is perfect. This is a, uh, again, it, it is technically a side quest near the end of the game, but it, it gives you a very uh, potent uh, piece of equipment when it's done. And so you really have incentive to, to go after all of these side quests. And really, at this point, this side, the end of this side quest leads into a scene involving all the NPCs and the main character together. Nalist says, hey, everyone's getting together tonight. Seika says he's cooked up something special, and with Eshem recovering and Elana declaring peace, all the work that you've done for us, we thought we'd have a little celebration in your honor. So this is kind of like the culminating scene between Lunaeus and all of the NPCs. And if I hadn't been feeling this way before, this was the scene where I felt like, okay, now we officially have what I would call a bait and switch. In other words, presenting something that is enticing um, and trying to get you to interact with it based on a certain set of qualities. And then once you are actually interacting with it, there is a surprise and a switch and you are actually being served something other than what was advertised to you. Some examples of this that Christians have been guilty of. Long time ago, I heard of someone who, at Halloween, instead of, not along with, instead of handing out candy, would hand out little, like, cards with Bible verses on them to kids that come to their door. Or people, instead of leaving a tip, will leave, like, this fake dollar bill that looks like, or like, a, like, maybe a hundred dollar bill, and then you switch it over and it actually has a presentation of the gospel on the other side. It's not a real hundred dollar bill. I've also heard of churches doing like a, a, a haunted house that uh, is, you know, like has monsters and stuff and then is actually like this visions of hell or something like that and then ends with a like a gospel presentation in the very last scene. Now, in the last example, if you're going to a haunted house on a church campus, you ought to know that you might be getting into something that's going to be a little Christian-y. But in the other two examples, you have an expectation on Halloween as a kid of getting candy from somebody. That's why you take the time to go to their door, because that is the expected activity that night. When you as a waiter look down at your table and you see a $100 bill, you're going to get really excited. You're going to snatch that sucker up. So to be disappointed and realize, oh man, this isn't what I wanted, I feel tricked. That is the last thing that we want to do as Christians. It's one reason why uh, 
I am very clear in the content I put out that it's Christian it's Christian Geek Central. It's the Christian Geek Central podcast. If you watch one of my videos, it's going to have a bumper at the beginning that's going to say something about Christian Geek Central. It's the name of the channel. When I put out audio dramas, which I really like using to explore various biblical and theological themes, I make it very clear on the website. This is this is Christian inspired content. And in the scene coming up here that I'm about to walk us through, I see uh, the you know representatives, I suppose, in in a sense of the LGBT community, taking a page, unfortunately, from some of the uh, most cringy practices that I've seen among Christians who use some art or something else to kind of trick people into hearing a presentation of the gospel. Now, in First Corinthians chapter five, uh, Paul says, "What do I? What have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not is is it not those inside the church?" whom you are to judge. And so I'm not bringing this up to wag a finger at the writers of this game. If they were professing Christians and I had an established connection with them, then at that point I I might say, you know, I don't think this connects best with what we see scripture telling us in terms of how we ought to present uh, messages that we want to put out there. But they're not coming from a biblical moral compass or anything like that. So this isn't me wagging a finger at them. This is me trying to, you know, thinking out loud, trying to figure out how should we as believers respond to content that does this, expressing views that are controversial uh, in the same way that, uh, that the gospel is controversial. How should we respond? I would say, first off, not with anger. We shouldn't be getting on forums or social media or whatever and just kind of saying, brr, 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 SJW, blah, 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 blah. That, that doesn't help anything. It is not the role of believers to go around and wag fingers at unbelievers. It's the role of believers to share the love and the light of Christ and uh, as much as we can make ourselves available to be instrumental to the Holy Spirit as he seeks to woo them into a relationship with him. And that's got to be done through a genuine, compassionate, loving investment in people, not through spouting off things about specific demographics and making these broad statements and using labels and stuff like that. Paul says in uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And we do not want the gospel to sound like this noisy gong being banged in front of people's faces. But that's what they're going to hear. That's what they're going to see from us if we don't uh, share these things with love. So I think what we can learn from this is really what not to do as we are um, representing Christ, to not use the bait and switch tactic. In uh, in none of the uh, materials that I saw for this game, I mean, I didn't do a super deep dive but looking at Steam, looking at the game's website, I didn't see anything about how this is propping up um, or, you know, seeking to bring understanding to others about LGBTQ issues or inspired by the values of the LGBT community. I didn't see any indications uh, about that. And yet, if this were a game made by a Christian and you took all the references to LGBTQ-related issues out and instead put references to... Um, to, to Christian elements, um, to being 
rescued, to putting your faith in Jesus, um, to l- trying to live a sanctified life um, in uh, uh, according to the Bible. You know, I mean, all of, all those kinds of things. This would be labeled, I think, appropriately as a Christian game if it had the same volume of Christian elements in place of the LGBTQ elements in the game. So I think what we can learn from this is uh, a few things. Um, we want to have compassion toward those who identify in some way as part of the LGBTQ community or demographic. As creative people uh, who are putting content out there, we want to learn um, from, you know, to avoid kind of the bait and switch tactic that I think is kind of being used here, whether it's intentional or not. That, that's the net result to me. Anyway, let me, let me walk you through this scene here. So they all have this nice campfire. Uh, Sakis says, so of course I had to say something. And Sakis is, again, uh, the character that the art style, the, the visual uh, depiction, if you're not looking at the video, um, looks like a female design, but it's a male character. Um, Sakis says, so of course I had to say something. Haristel, uh, another character who is, uh, I would say, looks female, but has more of kind of like a... a a rougher or more masculine kind of look. Um, She's larger uh, physically than all the other characters, much taller and has kind of like buzz cuts on the side of, you know, has kind of like a a mohawk type thing going on. So she's kind of like this tough, gruff, you know, uh, character. Harris still says, of course. Eshim says, what did you do? We still don't know what this story is or what's going on yet. We're in the middle of a campfire story here. Seika says, I couldn't help myself. I looked them dead in the eye, face straight and said, yes, commander, I would be happy to grease your pole. So, uh, clearly a sexual joke there. Esham says, I never knew army training could be so erotic. Um, again, you know, this is like all, already had, there'd been little, uh, tidbits of, you know, kind of like, a um, same sex relationship related stuff or sexual stuff going on. This scene really just started hitting, like dropping the mother load. Uh, Esham says, I never knew army training could be so erotic. Ramada says, I don't believe every word. He could never have kept a straight face saying that. And then he had to do extra chores for a week. Seika says, anyway, it was around then I realized I wasn't fit for real military work and found myself in the kitchens more than not. Haristel says, I remember Commander Rallis well, a stodgy old boar, but a good soldier. We'll never see him again, will we? Nelest says, we have each other at least. Esham says, that smells amazing, Sake." Rameda says, oh no, haven't you learned? If you're going to be in a relationship with Seikas, you can never praise his cooking. You'll never hear the end. Seikas says, is that what pushed you away, Ram? I thought it was my humor. Rameda says, that didn't help. Eshim says, you two were together? Seikas says, oh, a couple years ago, it never amounted to much. Ram couldn't handle me. Rameda says, oh, please, don't start with that. Haristel still hasn't forgiven me for breaking up with you. Haristel says, hey, it's not that I haven't forgiven you. I just thought you were very cute together. Besides, you're so much easier to deal with when you can get your rocks off. And that's a euphemism for having an orgasm. Lunaeus says, so you were, uh, I think there's a typo here, actually. So you were with Together too when he was with Seikis? Um Maybe there's a them missing. So you were with them Together too when he was with Seikis? Maybe, I- I'm not sure. Haristel says, sure, Rameda's got a, Rameda's quote, got a lot of room in his heart, as he says. Rameda says, it's true. 
Haristel says, he likes having other partners, but make sure I never feel neglected. Plus, I'm not too much into sex. It works for both of us. This was all a little bit jarring at this point. To like, okay, actually, now the word sex, erotic and sex, these words are showing up in this uh, conversation here. Uh, they could be talking about all kinds of things around the campfire, but it's really largely focused around these uh, relationships that have been going on between them. Lunea says, many members of my clan had multiple partners too. We are or were a small group. The mothers would often take multiple lovers, often from outside the clan, to grow our number. I suppose for us, polyamory was a necessity, but it wasn't mandatory. Haristel says, well, it's basically a necessity for me too. Like I said, he's much easier to deal with when he can get laid. Romeda says, so Lunaeus, does that mean you're polyamorous too? Linnaeus says, well, I grew up knowing it's a possibility, but no. Sekas says, swing and a miss, Ram. Romeda says, what? Well, that wasn't why I was asking. Sekas says, oh, I know, but I couldn't resist. Besides, it's pretty clear Linnaeus isn't into men. Linnaeus says, don't make assumptions, Sekas. I actually like both women and men. Sekas says, oh, sorry, Linnaeus. You're right. Shouldn't assume. So I, I feel like a little bit of messaging there. You know, we don't put people in boxes, don't label people, that sort of thing. There's a lot going on in this campfire conversation that, uh, that you could kind of uh, analyze. Linnea says, apology accepted. Anyway, there were a few boys in the clan I was interested in, but for the most part, I do prefer women romantically. In the clan, relationships between women were a bigger deal, though. Nalist says, was it forbidden? And at this point, you know, again, even if this was about heterosexual relationships, I would feel like this is all coming out of left field to suddenly be having this big, long cutscene that's just all about the dating and relationships and stuff like that. And it's late in the game, part of a quest that nets you a really useful item. Again, the list says, was it forbidden? Linnea says, oh, not at all. It was fairly normal, seen as a way to combine two houses into one. Mothers who married other clan women were often very powerful leaders. However, my duty as a warrior meant that I needed to stay unattached. Haristel says, a warrior needs focus. I approve. Linnea says, but really, I'm not open to multiple partners right now because I want to focus on one special person. And the list gets an exclamation point. She's wondering, what's this all about? Seika says, cute, with a bunch of U's to draw it out. Romeda says, yeah, y'all are adorable. Nalist says, hey, don't tease us. Romeda says, sorry now. Seika says, the feast is almost ready. Haristel says, this is amazing. It came from that magic meat machine Lunaeus found? Seika says, magic meat machine. Maybe one of those could solve Romeda's problems. So again, every opportunity taken to, you know, make some kind of a sexual innuendo. Esham says, I could use one of those myself. Seika says, oh, you already have one. Esham says, it's true, though. This wouldn't be possible without Lunaeus. Romeda says, none of this would. Haristel says, we may be stuck here, but I've never been so hopeful about my prospects. Seika says, to Lunaeus. And then everybody joins in, to Lunaeus. The list then says, hey, Lunaeus. I wanted to show you something. Come with me. So uh, Lunaeus then, the, the cutscene immediately goes to that same waterfall that you'd helped uh, those other two guys have a date at before. Um, Lunaeus and, uh, S S what's her name? I got Celeste, I forgot already. <laughs> anyway, Lunaeus says, wow, this is beautiful. Nalist, there we go. Nalist says, uh, yes, it is. That crystal you brought me, I made it into a pair of earrings. Lunaeus says, that's amazing, Nell. Nalist says, it's for you. It will help keep you safe. You've done so much for us, for me. I, I couldn't bear to see you hurt, so... Lunea says, you could have given this to me at the camp. Nalist says, I wanted to be alone with you. 
if that's okay. Linnaeus says, of course it's okay. And then we fade to black, and then uh, lights come up again, and we are back at the base in the spot where you usually interact with Nilist uh, as she's, you know, to go and have her do crafting stuff for you or to do side quests or whatever. But one thing is different. Lights come up, and we see a really brief animation of Lunea standing up from a mat on the floor as if she's just gotten up from sleeping. Nilist says, Hiya, it's good to see you, hun. Come back to me when you can, all right? So now clearly there's some kind of a relationship here. I think the implication is that they probably slept together. Um, again, it's pixel art. You know, they're not doing anything visually racy going on here. But in terms of the uh, the nature of the relationships and stuff, um, it's uh, pretty adult in its content and pretty specifically pro-LGBTQ uh, issues. So anyway, that's what I mean by kind of like that bait and switch. And I think the a major takeaway you know as for for us as christians who might you know sit through a, an experience like this and be like uh man this is t- kind of taking me out of the game i am clearly not feeling what the the writers of this game are wanting me to feel i'm not being swayed or quote unquote learning what they may want me to learn creating a fictional environment where this is normalized uh, is not persuasive or perspective shifting for me but I think our reaction shouldn't be anger and, and certainly not to take, you know, feelings of anger and being going out and expressing those online or verbalizing those. I think, you know, if, if you're feeling anger about that, chase that down, take that to Jesus, figure out what's what's going on there. Because a lot of times that is not a, a truly righteous anger. Righteous anger is pretty rare. Instead, I think we ought to take how we feel in our reaction to this and say, okay, uh, don't do that when I create content. <laughs> and at the same time, learn from what the writers are saying. Have compassion for them and, and the negative experiences they're having because of where they find themselves. And then look for resources that can equip you to be as useful, as gracious, uh, and as uh, as truthful as you can be all at the same time in the life of someone that uh, that you may know or that you may interact with online that I identifies as a, uh, as part of the LGBT community. One resource I can recommend is a website called livingout.org. This is a, a website that is all about f- sorting through same-sex attraction um, and what it's like to live with same-sex attraction or with someone you know that you know that has same-sex attraction and uh, how that intersects and overlaps with the Bible and what the Bible says about those things. How do we be compassionate and truthful at the same time? Or as, as Christians, if we find ourselves experiencing same-sex attraction, what do we do with that? It's a website that is uh, far, far more than just simple Bible quoting. Uh, has um, testimonies from from people from various walks of life, including those who have same-sex attraction and that are also Christians and are sorting through those things. So whether you're feeling same-sex attraction yourself or you know someone um, that has those attractions, I think livingout.org uh, is a, at least a great starting point to see what kinds of things are available out there that can help us represent Christ um, as, as best we can. All right. This video was a little bit different from my usual, but uh, I did enjoy a lot of this game. If you are a fan of symphony likes, uh, then I definitely think it's worth checking out and at least looking into it a little bit further to see if you might be interested in playing it yourself. That's all for now. 
Feedback. Feedback. Give me your thoughts on this podcast, Christian Geek Central, the YouTube channel, anything else we're doing. What should we keep? What should we change? Or what's on your mind you'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on? We want to make this show and all of Christian Geek Central as fun and useful as we can, but we have to hear from you to do that. You can send an email or audio file recorded on your phone to P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com. As a reminder, guys, if you'd like some help finding a, a, a good church in your area, I want to help you if I can. Online resources and communities are a good supplement, but by nature they cannot speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. You can email me at paeter at spiritblade.com and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. Um, I want to thank, even though he's not on the show this week, I want to thank John Wilkerson for uh, the contributions that he's been making to In Search of Truth and our look at Proverbs lately. I just had another recording session with him last night and in a couple more weeks we'll be back into Proverbs with uh, with that material. But uh, really been enjoying that time uh, with John and appreciating uh, all that he's bringing to uh, to that study. If you want to hear uh, or read more of John, more of his mind and heart on the issues of life, uh, you can check out his blog at strugglingforpurpose.com. Strugglingforpurpose.com. That's all i got for you guys. Stay tuned for DS9 Shawarma after the credits or jump back to episode 400 if you'd like to start from the, from, 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 from the beginning. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground podcast at spiritblade.com. Dot com. Next week, if God allows it anyway, um, and I have to say that like um, this week, I uh, this, this is why I always say if God allows it, because, you know, uh, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand, as Proverbs 19.21 uh, tells us, and that I need to constantly remind myself. I had intended for weeks to share um, Katya from the Netherlands review of the Dawn of the Jedi comics trilogy which she gave me a while back and um, uh, offered it as a as something I could use for um, a week that I'm a little bit lighter on content and then this time spinner thing came up and I just realized I really to to really do this topic justice I'm going to need to spend a little more time on it than I would have thought I didn't even know I was going to be reviewing the game until like uh, Sunday of last week so uh, that kind of derailed my plans to share Kachi's review here Um, but uh, I have that plan for middle of uh, October now. I've been itching to share that with you guys. I do think you're really going to enjoy it. So anyway, have not forgotten about that. But getting back on track with next week, if God allows it anyway, I will share a review of the movie Venom, um, as well as share more Christian geek news from the Christian Geek Radar, and a conversation with Dallas Mora of Geek Devotions about balancing our pursuit of godly living and our enjoyment of geek hobbies. So a lot's coming up in that show next week. I hope you'll join me for that. Till then, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade Insider of any subscription tier at patreon.com slash Productions. You can also help this work by leaving a positive review of the Christian Geek Central podcast on iTunes or other podcast services. Just one or two sentences is all it takes and it's a great way to help us grow and offer more content to more people. Thank you guys so much for making time for this show. I hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian 
Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. The Christian Geek Central podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Painter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. Something's coming through the wormhole. The Dominion has endured for 2,000 years and will continue to endure long after the Federation has crumbled into dust. Five years ago, no one had ever heard of Bejor or Deep Space Nine, and now all our hopes rest here. And that was Sons and Daughters, the inspiration for the John Mayer song Kim loves so much. Um, sadly, not the best one of this arc. Yeah, this is pretty much the weakest part of this arc, and what's sad is it would still be a at least average to above average episode of, say, Enterprise. <coughs> um, this is, if you remember all the way back in The Next Generation, Worf had a son. He was an accidental son that he didn't know about until the kid was like, well, he was supposed to be a year old, although he looked more like a four-year-old, but his name's Alexander. And he was an off-and-on semi-regular on the show. There'd be periods where Worf would send him back home to his grandparents on Earth. And then he'd come back on the Enterprise. And what's weird is this was never really resolved. He came back at some point in Season 7, I believe. And then we ne- we had an episode or two. There was a really stupid episode I've already covered with the locks on a Troy. He did some holodeck adventures with his dad. And we never saw him get sent away or anything. And as far as we know, he was on the ship when it crashed in Star Trek Generations. And then we've never heard anything from him. After Generations, Worf joined up with Deep Space Nine. And except for O'Brien at one point making a passing comment about, you barely ever see your son. Uh, maybe one, one or two other times he talked about, you know. But very rarely does Worf ever even talk about his son. And we've never seen him. And lo and behold, we, we begin the episode with, if you remember last time, they, they managed to get the radio transmitter, the Dominion transmitter, and they ostensibly called for help. Well, they're on board the Klingon ship, and they've been on for a couple weeks, and there's some comedy as they're, they're getting dropped off, and Worf's upset about the marriage and all that stuff, but the most of this episode takes place on the Klingon Bird of Prey, and it's just Worf, Martok, and Alexander are their only regulars. We hardly see Cisco, Dax, O'Brien, Bashir, any of the others, except for the very beginning when they're getting dropped off. So they're on their way to their next adventure, but we don't. We're want, we're watching Worf's adventure here, um, and the idea is the same conflict Worf and Alexander have had since he was little, because Alexander's mother was very disdainful of the Klingon warrior culture and she their ways. She was half human herself. Yeah, and uh, I, I I'm pretty sure she was the inspiration for Belana Torres on Voyager. Yeah, she seems <clears> kind of <throat> like the Belana. Beta test. Only she had actually had a sense of humor. But, so, Alexander has never wanted to be a warrior. And Worf's always struggled with this. And near the end of Next Generation, he finally made his peace. Realized that Alexander just isn't made to be a fighter. And that's okay. And that's, you know, that was a good character development for Worf. Well, now that we've made that decision, here comes Alexander having enlisted. 
in the Klingon military to join in the Dominion War. And it's never, his, never, his motivation is never given. There's a novelization of this, which obviously isn't canon, but I like that his, no, according to this novelization, his motivation was like Captain America in the movie, which is nothing more than, I got no right not risking my life when so many others are risking their lives. So it's actually a noble motivation. Except the problem is that Alexander is terrible. He's terrible at everything. It's, it's not just that he's not a good fighter. He's not good. He's not a good engineer. On the ship. Yeah. He can't handle the computer consoles. He he screws everything up and causes all these mess ups. And it's like a sitcom. It's like Urkel in space. Yeah, and you're saying to yourself, you feel for the kid in the one sense, but in the other sense, it's like, why are you here? You will just die. And that's what Worf actually if you're says. Lucky. And if you're not, you'll take others with you. And what you would expect is you would expect the story, what, what's standard, and you could even call it cliche, but I'd say it's cliche for a reason, is that we would find out he's good at this. And he doesn't have to be necessarily like the uber, uber wondermensch, you know, he can do it all, but, but just yeah. say, he's a really good engineer. That's what they did with Nog, is it turns out, well, he's a good engineer. Um, you know, say that he's good with it, he's good. But no, everything he does, he fails at. Yeah. And he, frankly, he's a liability to those around him. And you know, danger to himself and others. And it feels like high school at times, where there's a bully who picks on him, and he has to find a place to sit. And they're, you know, and you know, it, the Alexander story it had potential. It wasn't, you know, it's not a complete waste, but it it really could have been and should have been a lot better than this. And we, except for Alexander, will appear again in the episode when Worf marries Dax. I'm sorry for the spoiler, which will be just after this. They. This, this arc ends. But except for that, he will never appear again. We won't hear about him having died or anything. He just is gone. It's the Chuck Cunningham thing. He just disappears upstairs and is never heard from again. Mm-hmm. Although, at least with the shifting fleets, you can say, well, he got assigned to another ship. A far better subplot is Kira's plot, back on the station. This is the daughter's <clears throat> half of the title. And if you remember Ziel, Ducat's daughter, who had been on the in the latter half of season five, had been on the station, and who Kira was seeing sort of like a young a little sister. Um, and at the end of season five, right before the big battle where they lost the ship, lost the station, sorry, uh, Kira sent Ziel to Bajor to live so she'd be in safety. Well, Ducat has brought her back, and so now for the rest of the arc on the station, Ziel is going to be there, part of Ducat's life, and. She wants her father and Kira to get along. Um, I don't think she's trying to initially play matchmaker. It doesn't really seem like that. It's more that these are two people she cares about, and she wants them both to be able yeah. to be a part of her life and a part of her successes. Part of it is that Zial is... Kira even points out that the last time Dukat was with Zial before this was when he first betrayed the station, betrayed the Alpha Quadrant, and signed up with the Dominion. And when she wouldn't come with him instantly, he said, quote, fine, stay here and be damned. And his plan was, if you remember, they were going to do some trickery and blow up the entire system. He left her to die because she didn't jump when he said, as soon as he said jump. Well, and again, recall, this is not the first time that Ducat has been prepared to kill his own daughter. Yeah, that was the very first thing. And yet, despite all this... Well, and you understand why, because again, the, the deep character stuff, Ziyal has been told stories about her father, she was, if you don't remember, she was the daughter of Dukat's Bajoran mistress, so she's a, she's a half, and uh, 
And so she was always told about her honorable father. She she remembered him from her early childhood. And then uh, the ship she was on was attacked by Breen, and she was made into a slave. So she spent her later adolescent years as a slave. And it's, she's only been not a slave for, I don't know, maybe two years now, if that. Two, maybe three. Yeah, something like that. So she's had a very hard and difficult life, and Ducat has been her touchstone. So you understand why she's kind of fixated, and she does not want to accept that her father is evil. But to Kira, her father is evil. He was the one in charge of the occupation. He betrayed the Quadrant and brought the Dominion in. He was one of the ones who helped bring this whole terrible situation about that the station is lost and the war is being lost by the good guys. All this is Ducat is central to this. And he continues this day by day. He's, In fact, we see a scene where he's like talking with lots of Bajorans and you can tell Kira's looking at this and like, this is the same thing that happened before. Is They're coming in as friends and they're going to make it worse. And, and they come with a smile, but behind that smile is awfulness and if you remember kira last time has decided she is going to start uh fighting against them and in fact that's what we see at the beginning is that she she and odo are starting to plan a resistance and jake tries to join in on that but no i i i personally think jake has had his i think that the vedic who killed herself i think she made a difference to jake just as much as she did to kira i think this is jake making the same decision as kira and i agree with you that i i can see that jake is Deeply emotionally moved by the problems here, that he really believes that there's something that I think he's sincere in wanting something to be done. But I'm with Quark. Kid, you don't know what you're getting into. You don't want to do this. Walk away. You know, Quark is concerned about safety, and I think rightly so. so. At the same time, this is one of those things where. The situation is desperate, and it's going to turn out Jake has an important part to play later on down the road. So it is good that he's joining up, even if at the beginning he's kind of an idiot. But that's what everyone's like. Everyone's innocent when they start these kind of things. And kind of like Kira, actually. Then when I think about it, he's kind of a parallel to Kira. Kira talks about how she was a young innocent in the occupation, and she she learned to kill. She learned the harsh realities of life, and that also reflects back on Zial, because Kira is trying to protect Zial from this. Zial is starting to do art and things like that, and you know the whole the whole point of this arc. It's interesting character stuff, but the whole point is basically it's not necessary because Kira's already made this decision. She's already said, "I'm not going to live the comfortable life. I'm going to do what I can to fight the Dominion." So all this was was a last temptation of the mundane. And the chance to lay back idly and do well, nothing. Well, Zial represents the attempt to... Um, gentrify? Not, not so much gentrify. I, I was going to say, she represents an attempt at a peaceful coexistence. Yeah. But and the problem is... Both you, in her person and in her art, she's trying to show, see, we Bajorans and we Cardassians don't have to fight each other. And both of... Her parents are kind of saying, yeah, we kind of do. Yeah. So. Yeah, in a lot of ways it is almost like a kid of divorce in a lot of ways. Yeah. Except for the problem is, again, one of them is truly evil. And that cannot be forgotten. But yeah, not too much to say about this episode. It's not terrible, but there's a lot of pointlessness to it. It, there, it, it really, it kind of, it feels like padding. Um, no real major changes are made in this. Again, Worf makes a change with his son, but then we never see that followed up on, so it doesn't really count. And Kira has important things to go through, but all it is is confirming the choice she's already made. 
So, next time we'll start the trilogy of episodes that will bring us back to the status quo, but never exactly as it has been. What once was is truly lost forever. We'll see you next time. Bye.